following audio is from Crossroads Church in West Ossipee, New Hampshire. For more information about Crossroads Church, you can go to www.crossroadsossipee.com. Good morning. Um, I was uh, I was thinking um, earlier this morning about um, I've talked the last few weeks about flannel graph, <laughs> right? And uh, how, in my mind, because of my early years um, in training, Sunday school, and things, that Jesus and the disciples were all made of paper. And stuck to a felt a flannel board, right? Um, but now um, the pictures in my mind are a little different because I've been to the Holy Lands, uh, and so the pictures in my mind are different uh, than they used to be. And I want to help uh, our kids um, have a little bit more full picture. So I found. From my travels, um, when I went to the Holy Lands, I didn't buy a coffee mugs and T-shirts, which is my typical tourism uh, buy a souvenir thing. Instead, I picked up rocks, and I put them in a bag and marked where they're from. And so I have some rocks here from the city of Capernaum, which is what we're going to talk about today, and some rocks from the bottom of the Sea of Galilee. So I want to invite the kids to come up and put their hands on these to see that these places that we're talking about are real. It's not imaginary, legendary places. So come on up here, kids. These are the only ones I have, so we'll be careful with them, right? But they're rocks, so we won't break them. These came from the bottom of the Sea of Galilee. Remember we talked about the Sea of Galilee last week? You can touch them, pick them up. I didn't qualify the ages of the kids. That's a shell. That's right. That came from the bottom of that's the Sea of Galilee. Yep. And these ones over here came from the city called Capernaum. And if you look, this piece right here is not a rock. That's a piece of pottery. Make sure everybody gets in to see. You want to come and look? Yeah, and the piece of Chex Mix came from Illinois. <laughs> it's a piece of pottery. That's right. Okay, once everybody gets a turn, that's isn't that cool? Yeah. See, we're talking about real places when we talk about Jesus in the Bible. Okay, everybody get a chance. Did you get a chance? All right, grab one. Um, let everybody have a chance to touch them. If you're done touching them, you can go sit down. That's an ancient K written on that all the way back from 1997. Yeah, that's from Capernaum. Well, let everybody touch. All right. How about that? Neat, guys, huh? Guys, all right, I know the difference. Okay, let's put him back in the bag. Did you get to touch them? You didn't touch one? Look at Okay, let me see these. 
put them in my hand. See? That's from, those are real rocks from a real place called Capernaum. All right, we'll put them back in the bag. All right. Neat. You can just leave the bag right there. Don't take it home. Yeah, and the shell too. Yep. That's, that's all of them. Yep. Okay, thank you. You can just leave them right there. Good job. You got it. All right. You going to stay? All right. <laughs> so I want to do that to, re- to remind us that we are talking about real, real people, real places. When we open a scripture, it's not a book of fairy tales. So, we're going to uh, continue our work in the book of Mark, chapter 1, the gospel of Mark, chapter 1, and look at verse 21 through 28 this morning, and that's page 836 in the Pew Bibles. So, go ahead and turn there as we get started. Um, And the... The account that we're going to look at today... Um, it's another example of Mark's emphasis in his writing. Um, the main idea that he was driving at in, in all of the things that he wrote in his gospel, and that is the supremacy of Christ, that uh, Jesus Christ is above all, above all powers, above all kings, above all nature and all created things, like we sing in the song. That's... Um, that's his main thinking when it comes to Jesus, as Jesus is king. Now, as I study this this week, uh, this text, the commentators tend to separate this text into two parts. And if you look in your Bible there, even the translators emphasize a separation within these uh, verses here with their headings uh, for these verses But there's really only one main idea at work in this text, and that is the authority of Jesus. Most of your Bibles will say, Jesus heals a man with an unclean spirit, um, which is true, but that's not Mark's main point. He was talking about the authority of Jesus. So let's look at that text together, and I'll pray, and then I'll attempt to show you what I'm trying to talk about. Uh, We're picking up right after Jesus called Peter, Andrew, James, and John out of the boats um, to follow him from the Sea of Galilee, which is why we look at those rocks, uh, so that he could make them fishers of men. So this is what happens right after that. They all followed him. And then verse 21. They went into Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath he entered the synagogue and was teaching. And they were astonished at his teaching, For he taught them as one who had authority and not as the scribes. And immediately there was in their synagogue a man with an unclean spirit. And he cried out, What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. And the unclean spirit, convulsing him and crying out with a loud voice, came out of him. And they were all amazed, so that they questioned among themselves, saying, Who is this? 
a new teaching with authority. He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. And at once his fame spread everywhere throughout all the surrounding region of Galilee. Let's pray together. Father, as we turn our thoughts to your word this morning, I pray that your spirit would speak to us through it. I pray that we would not um, just settle for um, a paper Jesus in a flannel graph world that he lived in, but you would show us the reality of Christ at work and alive uh, in us, in our world, and in Capernaum and the lives of those he touched there. I thank you for reminding us this is the reality. Um, So we pray that your spirit would speak to us, open our ears to hear, our eyes to see, soften our hearts to receive your message. We love you and thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. So here we find Jesus and his disciples in the city of Capernaum, which is... uh, it's a leading city in that region on the northwest shore of the Sea of Galilee. Now, we say Sea of Galilee makes you think pretty big body of water, right? Well, it's not really. Uh, it's smaller than Lake Winnipesaukee, honestly. Um, but they call it Sea of Galilee, also called Sea of Tiberius or Lake Tiberius, um, which is not accurate. Tiberius was a city near it. Um, so the people from Tiberius call it Tiberius. Uh, but if you go there now, there's lots of signs that say that. Um, that's uninteresting trivia. <laughs> I'll give a lollipop to anybody else who knows another name for the Sea of Galilee. Just kidding. I don't have any lollipops. It's waiting for you at the store. All you have to do is give him money, and I'll give you one. Yeah. So this city, Capernaum, would become known as Jesus' hometown, which is another confusing thing. Jesus never said, I was born in Bethlehem, but the word says it. We know that it's true. He just never said anything about it. Um, We also know that he grew up in Nazareth, which makes us think Nazareth is hometown, right? But somehow Capernaum stole the title of being Jesus' hometown um, because it became his base of operations for ministry in the region called Galilee. And um, so even now, if you visit the city, there's a sign, welcome you to Capernaum, uh, the hometown of Jesus. Like if you didn't didn't read the rest of the book, but okay, we'll we'll let you have it. Um, now I say a city of Capernaum, um, and there's another deceiving title. Um, it's it's really more like the size of Shakoro Village. Um, it's actually smaller than that. Um, it, you can go there now, and there's like a signs of six houses. Uh, <laughs> And a synagogue, um, and that's that's pretty much it. Anyway, more interesting trivia for you. So Jesus, when he gets to town, 
on the Sabbath, he goes to the local synagogue and starts teaching. I've often become confused about this idea. Like Jesus just walks in the door, you know, and somebody's standing up front talking like me, and he's like, hey, I got something better. You sit down, and I'm going to teach the people. Like it always just seemed to me like he just kicked the door in and starts taking over. Well, that's not really true. Um, I want to talk about that so that we understand a little bit better about what's going on. And just to clarify some terms here, um, the Sabbath, he goes into the synagogue on the Sabbath. And just to clarify what that is, uh, we've talked about it a little bit before, but I won't take anything for granted. Uh, the Sabbath is the Jewish day of rest. And it's not Sunday, right? Like the church tries to take some of those terms and make them our own. And we say Sunday's our Sabbath. Well, Sunday's not my Sabbath because the Sabbath day is for rest. And some people say I only work one day a week and it just happens to be Sunday. So Sabbath is different. Sabbath starts sundown Friday and goes to sundown Saturday. The Jewish day was not morning to morning, it's evening to evening, just to confuse us even further. And the Jewish people observe this day of rest in accordance with the fourth commandment, um, doing nothing that qualified as work within that time from sundown Friday to sundown Saturday. Okay? Am I right, Linda? Okay. (laughs) I worked really hard on that. The Jewish people had also adopted more rules to protect the Sabbath so that they defined what work was, and they got really specific. You know, cooking, cleaning, uh, that's, that's work. You can't cook anything on the Sabbath. You cook it the day before and eat it cold on the Sabbath. You couldn't even warm up your hot pockets. You have to eat them cold, right? And they even established the maximum number of steps that a person could take on the Sabbath, like the furthest that you could go before walking became work, right? <laughs> Okay, so in case you're curious, we're just full of trivia this morning. A Sabbath day's journey is traditionally 2,000 cubits. And a cubit, as we all know, is 18 inches. The length from the average person, not a Keniston, but an average person's elbow to fingertip, right? Maybe a smaller Keniston than me, all right? So that's uh, 36,000 inches that you could walk without violating the Sabbath. That's 3,000 feet um, or 1,000 yards, just under two-thirds of a mile. Isn't that funny? Who cares? Like how far you have to walk before it's work? The original intent was... Uh, of the the original intent of the provision was to ensure a quiet and leisurely Sabbath to keep it from becoming a harried and busy day. Like that does not exist on my calendar. We don't have those days. It's when the family all goes to school, that, then it, it gets very relaxing at my house because I'm there by myself. But um, the idea was to keep keep this day of rest quiet. It was also designed to keep the Israelite worshiper in the area of the center of his worship. This is another interesting uh, 
idea. The motive was noble, right? That sounds good, but unfortunately, it, it resulted in empty legalism. Like there is a line from your house you cannot cross on a, on a, a Friday night or Saturday. I like the idea that it keeps us in the center of our worship, or of our area of worship, which is interesting to me. That fact helped us to determine the size of the city of Capernaum, which is interesting. The city limits couldn't be any further away from the synagogue than two-thirds of a mile because you couldn't get there without violating the Sabbath. You, it had to be less than... Then the, the city had to be less than a mile, of, mile and a third across, or people would not be able to go to the synagogue on the Saturday if they were outside of that boundary. So think about that on your 20-mile ride home today. It's, I think it's interesting. And you don't. So we're going to move on. The second term we should define... Oh I'm boring myself. I'm really sorry. The second term we should define is a synagogue. I think this is really interesting. We hear about a synagogue a lot in the New Testament, uh, specifically in the Gospel and the Book of Acts. What is a synagogue? What's it for? The synagogue um, was a place of worship for Jewish people. Obviously, that's what we've been talking about so far. But it did not replace the temple in Jerusalem. We're familiar with the temple. It's the only temple that gets a capital T. Uh, it's gone now, um, but this was a place of sacrifice. And we read through the Old Testament uh, of the temple and the sacrifices there. But that's not what synagogue was. It didn't replace the temple. It, um, it was not a place of sacrifice. They didn't sacrifice anything there, but it was a place of worship and teaching. And the synagogue was established during the Israelite exile in Babylon when they couldn't get to Jerusalem to worship at the temple anymore. They established a synagogue. And when the um, Jewish people would still take at least a yearly trip to Jerusalem to offer their sacrifices. But their regular worship weekly happened at the synagogue. And synagogues could be established wherever there was at least 10 Jewish men. There had to be 10 Jewish men living in an area and they could establish a synagogue. So when the Apostle Paul goes to Philippi, he doesn't find a synagogue but he finds the place of prayer by the river and finds women gathered there to pray. We know there's no synagogue in that city. That means there's, there wasn't 10 Jewish men in the city of Philippi worshiping the Lord, but it was some women praying at the river. I'm, I'm really entertaining myself with these, with these ideas. So ten, men, 10 Jewish men could get together and create a synagogue. They're governed by elders and preside presided over by a synagogue ruler. Um, and it was common for visiting rabbis uh, to teach in the synagogue. When the, when the synagogue met, a wandering rabbi could come in and teach. They were welcome to do that. And that's why Jesus was free to teach in the synagogue in Capernaum. He didn't kick the door in and say, I'm taking over, everybody. You shut up. It's my turn. He didn't do that. He was invited to speak because people around there knew him. They knew he was a rabbi. They knew he was a teacher. And so they invited him uh, to come and to speak. The word rabbi means teacher. Again, if you're adding to your trivial pursuit collection. 
So he was allowed and invited to teach. And what's interesting about the account in our text this morning was that the content of Jesus' teaching was not included at all. Mark did not write down what Jesus said. He just said he was in the synagogue and was teaching, and the people were amazed. I think that's pretty pretty interesting. It did not Mark did not include the content of his teaching, only the nature of his teaching. He taught as one who had authority. And the people of the synagogues were used to the scribes and the teachers of the law reciting the interpretations of the law and the interpretations of the interpretations of the law uh, that were passed down from other rabbis and their rabbis' rabbis and their rabbis' rabbis' rabbis. They're just reading somebody else's stuff. They're thinking about other people's thoughts on the teaching. Not very much unlike the danger that modern preachers face even today. It's very easy. I could just read you somebody else's sermon. You've never used that word before. That's clearly not yours. Yeah. So that's what they're used to. And it was empty, but they had to do it. It was part of their religious obligation. Sounds like a very sad and hollow way to live, and yet popular. So along comes Jesus, this wandering rabbi, who comes in and teaches with authority. And this is not false authority, not fake authority. Jesus' authority was not based on his charisma. It's not based on his natural ability to command a room. It's not just smooth speech or a booming voice. Jesus' authority comes directly from the Father. John said, uh, Jesus said in John 14, 24, Whoever does not love me does not keep my words, and the word that you hear is not mine, but is from the Father who sent me. Oh, he's already mentioned this morning uh, the wonder of the triune God, that he is both Father and Son and Spirit. And Jesus was not there on his own authority. He was sent there by the Father, and he was empowered by the Spirit to speak the words. In the age of the church, the age that we live in, no idea is more important than that the authority of Jesus' teaching trumps everything. Lasting truth only lies in the truth of Jesus' teaching. Secular thinking, ideas about psychology and current events on mental health, on moral arguments, is of no help at all. 1 Corinthians 3.19 says, The wisdom of the world is foolishness with God. It's far too popular in our day to say, well, the Bible says this about this section of things, these religious ideas, but it doesn't have anything to say about anything else, about, about society at all. It's just about moral stuff and old, dusty books. Ugh, who cares? We're more modern than that. We're more evolved than that. Well, that's total garbage, in case you're wondering. 
I'm often asked my opinion on different matters facing the world today, questions of morality or political arguments. And my response is always the same. My opinion on these matters is irrelevant. It doesn't matter what, how I feel about a moral argument or whatever. It's only God's opinion that matters. What does God have to say on the subject? Nothing, nothing in this life makes any sense without the authority of Jesus and his teaching. Jesus' teaching makes all the difference. And if you think that Jesus' teaching doesn't cover whatever area you're concerned about, you're not looking hard enough because he talks all about it. Uh, Ray Stedman said that if you were to take all of the books on psychology, secular psychology, and boil them down uh, and, and, and hand them to the, the most poetic person in the world today and have them uh, talk about this psychology and all of these social issues and all of that stuff, what you would have is a very crude version of the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus did cover it all. His teaching covers it all. Uh, it just so happens that we don't know what his teaching was on this particular Sabbath. But what we do know is that when he taught, he taught with authority. He wasn't offering his own opinion. He was speaking on behalf of our Father. So instead of splitting this account in two, there's really only one idea at work, and that is the response to the authority of the teaching of Jesus. The people in the synagogue were astonished. They were overcome with amazement. But it's interesting that the people of the synagogue were not the only ones there. There were more at the synagogue than just the people. Verse 23 says, And immediately there was in their synagogue a man with an unclean spirit. And he cried out, What do you have to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, <clears throat> the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. And the unclean spirit, convulsing him and crying out with a loud voice, came out of him. What I think is more interesting than what, what the demon had to say, we could probably talk about those ideas, but what I think is more important is the fact that the synagogue, with all its traditions and interpretations and empty religion, had no power at all, so that even demons were comfortable there until Jesus showed up. But when Jesus entered and spoke with the authority, the unclean spirit couldn't stand it anymore. I wonder how many churches today fit that same description. That people are so unconcerned with the actual teaching of the actual God through the actual scriptures that demons are comfortable there 
it's no big deal because nobody says anything that would contradict their own teaching. I hope that's not us. I pray that never becomes us. When people yield to the authority of Jesus and his teaching, those in the supernatural realm take notice. Jesus and his teaching are the ultimate threat to the stronghold of Satan. We can't forget that. Our opinions on matters that don't have anything to do with Scripture are just based on our, our traditions or our opinions or our feelings or our upbringing. That has no power. Do you understand what I'm saying? You might be right. Your opinion may be correct. I don't care. But if it's not rooted in the teaching of Jesus, it has no real power at all. Your favorite color is orange. Great. You wear orange every day. So what? Jesus died for your sin, paid the penalty for your disobedience, and has something to say about how you live, and he is the one that defines what morality really is, not the world, that changes things. When you say Jesus' way is the way to live, when you know what that way is, it changes the way you behave. That has power. Not just, well, I don't murder people because it's not nice. Right? So what? We don't, we don't murder because Jesus said to love your neighbor as you love yourself. That's not the same thing. Do you see what I'm saying? Our opinions have no power, but the teaching of Jesus does. This is so important because lots of people, lots of people say that they yield to Jesus when they don't. Lots of people say that they believe in Jesus, but they don't yield to his teaching. They are still the authority in their life. Jesus is not. Their opinions and their uh, traditions are the authority, not Jesus. You understand what I'm saying? But the truth of the matter is the two cannot be separated. You cannot say that Jesus is my Savior if you do not yield to his authority. You're contradicting yourself. Because Jesus had more to do than just die on a cross. What did he do that whole three and a half years of ministry? Just like, hey guys, pretty soon I'm going to die on a cross, so you better believe in me. Uh, two years from now, I'm going to die on a cross, so you better believe in me. He had so much more to say about how to live in a way that pleased God and a way to please our Father than to just believe that I exist. Lots of people believe that Jesus exists. The demons believe that Jesus exists. But they don't yield to him. They don't trust in him. Faith in Jesus and yielding to his teaching cannot be separated in a Christian life. It's impossible. Jesus said, whoever does not love me does not keep my words. And the word that you hear is not mine, but is from the Father who sent me. I think we forget about that. If you love me, you will do as I command. Not if you love me, you will agree that I exist. 
Ray Stedman said, response to the normal, ordinary demands of life and the power to cope with it must come from our reliance upon him and his teaching at work within us. This is the secret. All power to live the Christian life comes not from us doing our dead level best to serve God, but from him granted to us moment by moment as the demand is made upon us. Power is given to those who follow, who obey. The Father is at work in the Son, and the Son is at work in us. As we learn this, then we are given power to meet the demands and the needs which are waiting for us in the ministry yet to come. It's not from doing our best to serve God. It's in yielding to the teaching of Jesus. In our house, we have an expression. What's the secret ingredient? Effort. Effort. Well, when it comes to living as a disciple of Jesus Christ, the secret ingredient isn't effort. It's yieldedness. I'm still going to ask, what's the secret ingredient when you can't open the jar of pickles or whatever? But when it comes to following Jesus, when it comes to the Christian life, the secret ingredient is yielding to the teaching of Jesus. We cannot say we believe in Jesus if we continue to disobey him or continue to forget what he had to say or disregard it completely. The secret ingredient is not our ability to grab on and to work hard, but it's to let go and to entrust ourselves to the authority of Jesus and his teaching. Unclean spirits can't stand it, and secular wisdom can't stand up to it. They are both powerless against it. The question we must wrestle with is what power does Jesus and his teaching have on us? Are we yielding to the teaching of Jesus? Jesus said, those who love me will keep my word, my teaching, and my father will love them and we will come to them and make our home with them. Whoever does not love me does not keep my words and the word that you hear is not mine, but is from the father who sent me. If we claim to love Jesus, we must keep his word. Amen? That's a hard amen, but it's still a truth. We must yield to the teaching of Jesus. Let's pray. Father, first of all, we recognize that we cannot yield to the teaching of Jesus without your help. We need your spirit at work within us to change our hearts so that we turn from yielding only to our own thoughts and our own sense of morality, turn from our, our own uh, sovereign reign over our lives, turn away from that to trust you, to trust your teaching to govern our ways in our lives 
to trust in the things that you say about how we live and to obey. Lord, I know the promise isn't happiness if we trust and obey. But there are eternal ramifications. Lord, I pray that your spirit would help us to learn your teachings and to obey them, that we might keep your word. May we be different than we used to be because we follow you for real, not just say we believe that you exist or even believe that you died on the cross for us, but that we trust you to teach us that we would truly follow you, not just by wearing a T-shirt or wearing a cross around our neck or sticking a fish on our car. I pray that we would turn our lives wholly over to you, to trust you, to trust your word, to govern our lives. We love you, Lord, and we know that your way for us is better. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. If you would like to participate in the mission of Crossroads Church through financial support, checks can be mailed to Crossroads Church, Post Office Box 576, West Ossipee, New Hampshire, 03890.